0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. It's a cold, wintry-feeling day in Houston, so I'm enjoying it while it lasts. I hope you guys can enjoy it for the couple hours that it will last. Um, But it's great to have that feeling on a Sunday morning as we come and light the Advent candles, we sing and pray to God. It just feels like a a great day to worship God. Uh, Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this morning, for the moments of joy that we could appreciate, from the orchestra playing to the singers being here, inviting us to recognize that you have come to bring us something new, something real, and something that we want to receive today, the hope of your joy. And we pray today as we enter into scripture and as we navigate some of the uh, the complexities of our world today, teach us once again, to find our hope in you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, again, welcome. It's great to be here on a Sunday. We started a series for Advent. It's called Advent Stories. We're talking about the stories of men and women throughout history who have pointed the way to Jesus through their life, through their words, through their prayers and their actions. We are taking their example and learning to bring that hope into our lives afresh and anew again today. Last week, we looked at the story of Ezekiel and how he lived through the exile period and how that led into the time of Jesus and how he fulfilled longings for life to come back to the nation. And we ourselves are looking to Jesus to bring us that life. Now, today, we're going to be taking a look at another Advent story. We're going to be taking a look At Mary and how she also continued that line of hope. So for those of you who may be less familiar with what Advent means or with sort of the traditions of the church, Advent is simply a season in the life of the church where we wait upon God. And during this waiting, we are placing our hope in God for things like peace, and joy, and for all the things that God has promised us. So it's a season of renewal as we look again to God for these things. And Mary is going to help us do that in a special way today. So I'd like to do three things. Talk about Mary's context, and then her story in particular. And then we'll talk about how Jesus fulfills that. And then we'll talk briefly about how we can be sort of moving in the same direction, in the same line ourselves. So first of all, Mary's context and story. So a few words about how we kind of pick up the story from last weekend. So we talked about Ezekiel who lived during the time of the exile and the exile was a really dark time in Israel's history. Israel kind of lost its way They began to worship idols instead of God. They began to abuse their power and their privilege. They exploited people who were at the bottom of a society, those who had no power. They were, in a sense, doing all the things that God had told them not to do. And because they were in such a bad state spiritually and this darkness had come over them, God allowed them to be conquered by a foreign nation. So you'll remember this picture, it's, A picture of Jerusalem uh, being taken over by the Babylonians who had carried away some of their brightest and best to go live in a foreign nation to go serve foreign gods and foreign agendas. It was a dark time. But even in the midst of this darkness, God called upon men and women to recognize that he was still at work. He called on Ezekiel in particular and gave him a a vision of a valley of dry bones. These bones came together, and as they came together, this was significant because it was a picture of what would happen eventually to Israel as it came together. But even after this vision happened, there was still a longing and a waiting for God to bring his breath to these old bones, to bring about his life. And as we fast forward to the time of the first century when Mary came on the scene, people were still wondering, is God with us? Is His life going to come back? Is that breath really going to come and reawaken our nation, reawaken our spirituality? Is God still with us? So it's into this context, that so we're going to start the morning with a A Kind of an interesting question, I think. It's important to ask about Mary's context. What did faith, what did hope look like in the first century? What did it look like during Mary's time? Now, during her time, the nation had split into different factions and groups. And some of these groups were more religious in nature than others, but they give us an idea of what faith and hope look like so first of all we're going to cover four of these groups there were the pharisees and they are the most i think familiar group of that time period Many of us know about the Pharisees because we read about them in the Gospels. We read about encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees. What you may not know is that they actually started off with some very great intentions, some very good spiritual intentions. Because when we think of the word Pharisee and we think about what they did, we are often thinking of negative things, right? But they actually started off as a grassroots movement to revive the nation. That means they were locally based And they were religious leaders who were trying to call people back to know God's word. That seems like a very admirable thing to do, right? This is what you've been missing. This is how the nation has drifted. And you need to come back and know God in this way. The unfortunate thing is that even though they started off in this revivalistic movement locally and the spiritual leaders had this intention, they kind of lost their way. They began to stray And they were really taken up with the idea that people were noticing their righteousness and their deeds. And because of that, because they liked the attention so much, they became puffed up with pride and they would rather be seen than actually have a heart for God. So here's a picture of uh, a familiar story from Luke about a tax collector praying and Really humbly coming before God, understanding his own sinfulness, and a Pharisee who was praying said, "Thank God, I'm not like this tax collector over here." Um, so there's this huge contrast that Jesus is pointing out, right? Now, not all Pharisees kind of were bad. Some of them secretly ended up following Jesus and went to Jesus, uh, that looked to Jesus as their Savior. Uh, Nicodemus uh, was a, a Pharisee um, who Jesus shared about. Um, being born again Uh, Paul was a Pharisee who later went that way so that's that's their, their story secondly we have a group called the Zealots and faith and hope for them looked a little different they weren't necessarily a religious group but they were activists and they hated the fact that their nation had been conquered over and over and over again So if you can kind of look through history, they were conquered by the Babylonians. Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. They were eventually faded out, and then the Greeks took over. And then there were the Romans. And over and over again, the people of Israel were subject to foreign nations in power. They were never fully free. And so the Zealots said, yeah, we're we're tired of this. And they were particularly upset with the Romans because The Romans stuck their own gods in their temple, in the temple in Jerusalem, and at some point this caused a huge fight, Um, that's part of history, but the zealots created riots, and they were not afraid to use violence to get what they wanted, and some of them went as far as to carry knives around with them to kill off or assassinate people that didn't kind of follow in their way. Now, not all zealots were extremists like that, but... Um, There was at least one zealot that followed after Jesus. His name was Simon. You'll remember in the list of disciples, Simon the zealot, he followed after Jesus. Uh, There was a guy named Barabbas, right, that we often hear about during Easter. He was likely a zealot himself, um, and he was freed while Jesus went to the cross. Third, there's a group called the Essenes, and this is probably the least familiar for most of us, um, unless you're... (laughs) someone who studies the New Testament. Um, uh, there were a people who were kind of disgusted with everything that was going on in the city, in Jerusalem and the rest of the nation. And they thought to themselves, we're going to leave. <laughs> Forget this. You know, everyone's corrupt. We're going to go to the desert. We're going to start our own communities and escape the corruption because everybody has lost their way. Everyone is problematic. And... They were praying in the desert, asking for a revival. Uh, Many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most likely, they were the ones who had helped preserve the word of God. Um, That's part of their legacy today. We found some old scriptures through their old communities. Okay, one more. What did faith and hope look like for them? They were escapists. (laughs) Lastly, they were the Sadducees. And these were the religious elites, They were the ones in control and in power. They were over the temple system, um, but they had kind of a a strange theology, one that would not typically you would think of as religious leaders would, because they no longer believed in God's future. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in their own spirits or a spirit or a soul um my old seminary f- professor used to say they were sad you see because they had no future so that's how um anyways i don't know why i said that but anyways that's how you may remember the sad you sees. not a very religious group after all but they were in control they were the elites and with the, the ones with wealth they put their faith and their hope in power in the power of the political system, in the power of aligning with the Romans, and eventually when the Romans wiped out Jerusalem, they were wiped out as well. So, why go through this history? Good question. I think it brings up a question for all of us to answer. What does your faith and your sense of hope look like these days? If you were to go back to the first century, what group would you have aligned yourself with? Because I I find myself tempted by all these things. To align myself in a certain way, to escape. (laughs) I find myself liking the Essenes more and more when I read about them because I am disgusted by a lot of things these days. Uh, And I can see a lot of people very much tempted by power. Even church people very much tempted to go in that way. And the question is in the air when we encounter the story of Mary. You see, Mary wasn't part of any of these groups. And her story is unique. And when it begins to unfold in the Gospel of Luke, we meet someone who lived on her own, out of the way And yet God had a plan to unfold through her life. We're going to read her story in Luke chapter 1. This is a fairly extensive passage of scripture, but some really good stuff here. Now, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, Will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And He has brought down rulers from their thrones but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The blue remarks I'll get to in just a moment, but they're there for a purpose. I want to go through two kind of ideas in this passage that kind of help us understand Mary's story a little bit more deeply, and to kind of get an accurate read of what's going on. First of all, there's this phrase that's given to Mary. The angel Gabriel announces this, you who are highly favored. This is the how he addresses Mary, and Mary is kind of shocked by all this, because she's She's just herself. She's a young virgin living in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. Not a grand city. She's not in great circumstances. And yet God says, you who are highly favored. Now the temptation in hearing this is to kind of think of Mary as like, wow. She must have done something really good in life. She must, somewhere in her youth childhood, she must have done something right. You know, yes, I'm quoting Sound of Music there, which is one of my favorite movies during this time of year, but that's neither, that's not part of the message. Um, So Mary, um, when we think of her, a lot of us are tempted to think that, you know, she won, you know, Israel's got talent, you know, she she just had the goods, you know. And when it came time for God to select virgins out of all the, you know, all the folks in the nation, you know, Mary was a standout. She was so good. But it's actually not the way to read that at all. You see, when you go through the text itself, the emphasis is not on Mary's goodness. She's barely mentioned at all. She's just this humble girl that lived in Nazareth and God visited her. The emphasis over and over in the text is on the grace of of God, You see, God is coming to bring grace through this young woman. It's about the grace of God, not the grace of Mary to bless all generations to come. Now, that's not to say that Mary wasn't a great person, or maybe she, she was a great person. If you were to meet her, you maybe you would have liked her a whole lot, you know? Maybe that was the case. But that's not the emphasis of the scriptures here. Now I just want to point this out because this is a very interesting point to make within our context today. You see, in our world today, we are obsessed with bigger and better, and a works sense of worth. Uh, Recently, I've been listening to a podcast, or I say a couple months ago, I started this podcast called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." Uh, I know Pastor John has mentioned it; he's one who kind of referred it to me, and. Um, I thank you for (laughs) him leading me down this crazy rabbit hole of a story. Um, And some of you have been listening as well. It's about the rise and fall of one of the biggest churches in America, led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll, who, you know, rocketed the fame. And basically the podcast begins to unravel how this church self-destructed because of bad leadership and a lot of abuses. What's really interesting in this is that the podcast and the church phenomenon really surfaces a weakness within American Christianity, within our church world today. And I wouldn't even just say the U.S., but even worldwide. We humans have this temptation to look at fame, to look at bigness, to look at grandness, and think, surely God must be behind this. Or on the flip side, if God is behind it, your life will be grand and big and huge because that's blessing. We get this thing all mixed up and we see within a story like Mars Hill that when this begins to happen, we become uncritical of how God may work. And we let abuse happen because we think, Surely, if it's big, it must be from God. Um, I wrote down some comments here. Sometimes we in the church are basically fooled into thinking that significance in the world's eyes is really significance in God's eyes. Very, very different. And what we see in Mary is a complete contrast. Because what has happened here is that God has chosen And announced that his favor is upon the humble. He has noticed somebody that nobody else has noticed. And if God notices her, then certainly he notices you and he notices me. He notices the small things in our lives. He notices the areas where we may feel forgotten neglected, overlooked, passed by because nobody else sees and notices these things. The things that are not great, the things that are not grand, the things that people aren't blogging about. You see, Mary didn't have millions of social media followers and lots of likes, but that was okay. That was perfectly fine. In God's vision, he said, I'm going to choose her and work through her. There's a second comment I want to kind of unpack here in this passage. It's Mary's response. She says, I am the Lord's servant, and may your word to me be filled. And this is very powerful. You see, what Mary says in response to God is, okay, okay. Yes, I'm going to go with what you're saying, God. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any earthly sense right now. I don't know why you would choose me. I'm perplexed by all this, but if you say so, God, I will go this way. Yes, I will be your servant and follow after this way. Mary said yes to God. And this yes is a very important spiritual move on our part. It's important to recognize that in the season of Advent, there may be things that God is calling you into. We've already done some prayers for the renewal of hope and the renewal of faith. We've looked at examples. And I think in these days, if God is nudging you, I think one of the most powerful things for you to do is to say yes to God. And if God somehow taps you on the shoulder and says It's time to move. It's time to do this. One of the most amazing, powerful things you can do is say yes to Jesus. Um, This goes for people all over in the spiritual world, from your first step to faith in God to maybe those who've been walking with God for a long time. The yes to God is always powerful. There's a second thing here, and I want to note that Mary's yes to God was a very sophisticated yes. And this is evidenced in her song. It wasn't just like, hey, you're going to have a baby even though you're a virgin. It's like, great. <laughs> no, she, she understood in this moment as she heard the promises delivered through Gabriel that this thing that's happening to me is part of God's big plan. This is it. I mean, this is the breath of God coming again to revive the nation. This is, this is hundreds of years of expectation and of hope coming into this one moment, and I am here to catch it. I'm here to be part of it. God is saying that I can be part of the larger narrative that he has come to save his people from sin and from death. There's a, a verse in the book of Isaiah, and I think she may have had an idea of, but it gives us an idea of what was going on through her. Isaiah writes in his prophetic book, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The sign will be, con- the, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a, a son and will call him, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. A really powerful, powerful statement that was made hundreds of years ago, in which people were waiting for this to happen. The Pharisees thought maybe if we legalistically follow, but they kind of went their their own way. The Zealots took it into their own hands to make this happen. The Essenes kind of abandoned everybody else. The Sadducees thought it was wrapped up in political power. God said, No, I'm going to unfold my plan through a virgin in Nazareth, and I will be with you. And Mary understood that this huge idea was going to unfold through her. See, the great Advent hope is this. The God is with you, and he is with me. God is with us. Even in our broken, our sinful, our, our repeated attempts at death in our world, all the messed up things that we do, Jesus is reassuring us that he is with us. So how did Jesus fulfill this? I want to quickly go through a couple of stories, some things that are very familiar. The hope we find in Jesus, Emmanuel, God, with us. You'll recall this story. One day, Jesus says, having dinner with a Pharisee, and Simon the Pharisee invited him over to grab a meal. They were eating together, talking, and then all of a sudden, this woman comes up behind Jesus, begins weeping, and her tears fall on his feet. She begins to wet his feet and clean his feet with her hair and then takes out a a jar of perfume and anoints him. Simon is looking and wondering, what on earth just happened in my house? This crazy Jesus is allowing this sinful woman with a bad reputation in town to touch him. If this were truly a prophet or the Son of God, he would never Let her touch him. But you see, Jesus was from God. And Jesus was in his right mind. And he did exactly what he was called to do in that moment. That is to let everyone know that he had come to be with us and to be with sinners. Another great story. In Mark chapter 1, there's a scene where a, a leper comes to Jesus, and this is before he has really launched out fully into all of his ministry. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks this question, he goes, Jesus, if you're willing, you could make me clean. It's a really interesting question, because up to that point, it had not been established that Jesus was for people who had leprosy. Now, if you know a little bit about your first century history and you know about leprosy, people who had this disease were incurable and they lived in their own part of town because they were deemed unclean, so they couldn't go to the temple and worship. They were outcasts. They were left on the side. They were forgotten. And when they walked through town, they had to shout things like unclean to warn people to move away because the lepers were there. This is a terrible type of existence. And so this leper comes to Jesus with this question. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And all of a sudden this leper sees that his skin is changed and he, he is clean. It's a message that tells us that God is with the sick and he is with the outcast. He has not forgotten you. One final story here. This is one of my favorites. It comes from Mark chapter 5. And Jesus is with his disciples They're going to the other side of the lake to the non-Jewish people, to the people who don't have the same story, who lived a little bit differently. And when they arrive on the other side, they're greeted by a man who lived among the tombs. The rest of his city had no hope for him because he was violent, he was abusive, there was no way to cure him, and as it turns out, he was possessed by an army, a legion of demons. He comes before Jesus, speaks all kinds of things that seem to know who he is and yet, it's not him in his right mind who's speaking. It's these demons, and Jesus confronts him, casts out the demons into a herd of pigs, and saves this man from death and destruction. The townspeople people see what happened, and they are afraid, because they see him dressed and sitting in his right mind, sitting before Jesus, They've lost a herd of pigs. They don't know what to make of Jesus at this point. But it's a reminder once again that Jesus is even with those that everyone else has abandoned. He is with the lost and he is with the hopeless. It's a weird end to this story because at some point this Man says, can I go with you, Jesus? <laughs> I mean, he's been living in the tombs for <laughs> God knows how long. He's been cutting himself because the pain of having these demons in his life is just so unbearable. He, had, he would rather cut himself and live with his agony. He would much rather be with them. Isn't that Emmanuel, God, with us? And Jesus says, I want you to go back to the region of the Decapolis. Tell your people what happened. Kind of an unusual ending to his story. But you see, a couple chapters later in Mark, Jesus actually goes back to the Decapolis. This is the epilogue. And while he is ministering there, he feeds 4,000 people. And if you've ever read through the Gospels and wondered, why is there a feeding of the 5,000 and then there's a feeding of the 4,000? I mean, a couple chapters later, and it seems like the disciples don't learn a thing <laughs> because there's such similar stories. Well, it's because one happens with Jews, and then one happens in the Decapolis among non Jews. And the big question is can Jesus do this with non Jewish people? He sure can. And why are 4,000 people gathered there? Is it because this one man's shared that news. And all these people heard and knew that this God was with them. Oh, so powerful. So, as I wrap up here, as we talk about these things, I want to talk about our hope today. How can we think about hope? This is the first thing. God is with you. This is Advent hope. This is Jesus Emmanuel. God is with you. And we are meant to frame our thoughts and our minds and our spirituality around this thought that God is with us. So many of us are used to framing our religion around these words that we are meant to live our lives for God, for the church, and for ministry. You need to live your life for God. Now that's an important preposition. And it's found in Scripture. And yeah, we do want to live our lives for God. The problem is, if that's your predominant or your primary proposition, you will miss out on the richness that is God with us, which is placing the accent on the wrong syllable, right? it's really looking at things out of step. You know, if you're a dancer, (laughs) you're dancing on the wrong beat. God is with us, and this is the foundation. This is where it's at. We are living life with God. And soul, community, and mission is how we phrase it at access. But that preposition is not lost on us. It's part of the way we frame mission because it is so central to the way we think through theology. God is with you, and he is with me. And when we learn to do that, Everything flows out of that. The way we enter into our relationships, the way we are called into living a life of faith, the way we embody the light of God, it's because God is with with us. Not just because we've been asked to do something for God and manufacture something. Okay, the next thing is this. And this is the second part of our hope. We have a hope we can share with others. That was part of the Advent reading this morning. That we have a joy, an overflowing joy that we can share with other people. That's all part of this hope. And the question is, is there someone you might invite to know Christ in this season? Maybe to come to church for maybe the Christmas Eve service, or maybe in the new year when we start a new year of ministry and new themes, or maybe to your small group, or maybe to just enjoy dinner with your family or your household over the holidays because they don't have an option. Is there someone that you may reach out to, not just because you have to, but because God is with you and you want to share this joyful Advent season? with someone else. I want to land on this last passage for us as we go and we finish up. Matthew 28. Very familiar passage that comes at the end of Jesus' ministry and as he's speaking to his disciples. He says to them, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the Advent hope, and it informs the rest of how we do the rest of our mission. So as we wrap up today, just like to invite the uh, the youth orchestra to come up again. It's been a joy to hear you all morning long. We're going to be doing this one more time as they lead us out today. We're going to be sending our prayer and just uh, doing our sending prayer in just a sec. As they get set up here in just a second, um, I invite you just to take a moment to reflect on what's been said. Just take a moment to think. Where is your faith? and sense of hope today. So we're gonna do our sending prayer first and then we'll get a chance to, to hear our outro. So let's stand together. And let's pray. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. And may your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, amen.